A few weeks ago, the world lost a remarkable on-screen talent in Caroline Flack. It's believed that the pressure of limelight and endless public scrutiny became too much for her to handle. Being famous, being successful, I guess is supposed to mean satisfaction. It's supposed to mean happiness. At least that's what Instagram and magazines and culture have always taught me. My next guest has lived his whole career in the spotlight too. He's one of the country's most successful TV presenters and he's worked across every major TV channel that there is, especially in the sports industry. On screen you see one thing, the same thing, every time. But behind every face, there's a story of heartbreak, a story of struggle, hardship, pain and failure. Jake Humphrey is a TV presenter. He's a journalist and he's a very successful entrepreneur and a lot of people don't really know about that. He's a guy I've grown up watching on TV pretty much my whole adult life. I think most people would just think he's that football guy or just that Formula One guy. But most people would be wrong. He's so much more. Jake's story is fascinating. It's one of failure, suicidal thoughts, getting to grips with online abuse that comes with being in the spotlight. It's a story of lessons learned from working alongside the world's leading high-performance sports stars and managers. It's using everything you've learned to rise from that and turn yourself into a tremendously successful individual. It was an immense privilege to get to speak to the guy who spends all of his time speaking to the most talented people in the world. I learned so much, and you will too. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody is listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Jake, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I consider it a real honour. You know, you're someone that I've watched a lot on TV. I'm a big sports fan. I'm a big F1 fan as well. So I've seen your face a lot. So, you know, it's sometimes surreal to see someone who you watched a lot on TV in person. But um, here's where I wanted to start with the podcast, which is you have a job Mm. that I think a lot of people would like. In fact, even in my own company, there are so many people that knew I was coming to meet you today and said that you have the dream job that they want. Why did you get that job? That is a brilliant first question. Why did I get that job? I think it is because I failed. And I genuinely believe that. You know, I I don't know how much you know of the story, but I was at at school in Norfolk um, and I failed my A-levels. I was the most, my story is so similar to yours. I was the most bang average kid at school and I got an E, an N and a U for my three A levels and had to go back to school to retake them. And it's hard to not believe in fate, right? When you go back to school to redo your exams and the very first day you go back, your politics teacher has a letter from a local TV channel asking people in that class to go on to a new digital channel or a new cable channel back in the late 90s to talk about politics and I went down there and I I said to them mum I failed my A-levels all my mates have gone off around the world on a gap year or they've gone off to university like this is a massively embarrassing period for me Uh, could I come and do some work here at the weekends as well as being on the TV show I'd actually been fired from McDonald's as well only about three three or four weeks before I failed my A-levels for lack of communication skills how long did you last? Can you believe I lasted two days. I was about there about four months. Okay. <laughs> but to be fired from there for a lack of communication skills and now to be sitting here talking to you about that was is a, is a kind of a weird thing when you reflect on it. But it was that A-level failure 
that meant I ended up at this tiny channel called Rapture TV, that meant I ended up at Children's BBC, that meant I got the Formula One job, that meant I've ended up at BT Sport, and now I'm sitting here talking to you. And I know there's obviously loads of loads of moments in between there and now, but it was that initial failure. But But so often when people encounter an initial failure very mm. early on, it takes them in the opposite direction it's like a race to the bottom for them because their confidence is knocked which means they try less which means their confidence never builds and then they and the cycle kind of continues but you know is there a reason that you can identify in yourself why failure took you in a better direction i think i was well equipped by my parents that life is not just a a bed of roses basically Mm -hmm. i'm a firm believer now that i've got little kids of my own that Mm -hmm. you have to teach your kids to fail you know as a parent i think we often try and build the world around our children so that they don't fail at any time and then suddenly you get to 18 or 19 you hit your first ever failure Mm -hmm. and you can't deal with it because you've not been equipped at a young age to deal with it and actually my parents instilled a real work ethic in us so i had a paper round from the age of about 12 or 13 i was almost forced to go and do the gardening for an old man who lived next door to mum and dad and for about two pounds an hour or whatever mm. i talked about you know being fired from mcdonald's that was a sort of a failure moment i think part of it Stephen, is that when i was 18 19 and i failed my a levels part of the reason why that happened was because i was actually quite a late developer i was quite immature you know i couldn't have done more than i did at that time i honestly don't believe because i just wasn't equipped for it my brain just wasn't sort of developed enough mm-hmm. and then as my brain sort of got to the point where i was I suppose um, I was old enough to be able to deal with with things. That's when failure came along, and it was almost like it happened at the right time for me. Mm-hmm. If it had happened too much earlier, I think I would have struggled with it. What's the what are the biggest misconceptions about you? That I'm smug, mm-hmm. and I don't know where that comes from. Like you spoke at the beginning about um, people in your office mm-hmm. going, "Oh, I'd love to have that job." I think it's almost because people assume that if they had the job that I've got, they would be smug because they've got the job. Mm-hmm. And that is just simply not the case. But maybe it's smug to sit here and say I'm not smug. I, I don't know. Mm. Um, but that is something I get all the time on social media, on Twitter and, and places like that. Um, I think the other the other thing is is that I'm just sort of lucky to be where I am. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really, I believe in fate. And I think I was really fortunate to get that first opportunity to go to Rapture TV and start my broadcasting career. But I don't think that, luck has really played a part in getting me to this point now you know i think i've sort of worked out the building blocks to success and i think that anyone can do it i think anyone listening to this podcast and who and obviously they are the kind of people that are minded towards success anyway because they listen to this and this is what this for me anyway this is what your podcast is all about i listen Mm -hmm. to it all the time i think it's about success Mm -hmm. no matter what you talk about for me it's about success and i think that um I honestly believe that anyone, anyone can get their hands on success. Why is it that some people don't become successful? Some normal people like you that went, you know, were crap in school. Why is it that those people that therefore don't become successful and why Jake Humphreys, who also was a very normal kid in school, went on to become successful? That's really the point I'm trying to get to is, is what's the, the, is it a mindset difference? Mm. Is it? I think we have to be really careful, right? When we talk about this, because I think we both have been successful, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that just because it's happened to us, then then um, it's something that's really simple and and it can be achieved by anybody. It's almost like just because it happened to us, we think it's the same rule for everybody else. I, sure. I don't think that. I don't think that success comes from 
expecting it to arrive. I think that you can be successful if you know the the trick to being successful. Does yeah. that make sense? Sure. And yeah. I think the trick, personally, I think the trick to being successful is an absolute rock-solid responsibility for every single minuscule part of your life. And I sometimes really struggle to explain this point to people. And I mean total responsibility, total 100% responsibility for absolutely everything, even things that are not your responsibility. Because I don't see any benefit with putting the blame for any part of your life onto anybody else because it's not other people's job to sort that life out, right? It's only yours. Mm -hmm. So there might be, a, let's take you as a prime example, right? Um, maybe it kind of was your fault, but let's say when you left university, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't your fault, yeah? It's still your responsibility to deal with that. Of course. What about all the times when you were trying to get success and mm -hmm. you were in your late teens, early 20s, and you you didn't manage it, right? Yeah. Not necessarily your fault, but still your responsibility to keep going to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and then when things do start going well, it might not be your fault that they've gone well. It might just be that the time was right. But then again, it's your responsibility to of take course. control of that. And I just think if people can get into a mindset where absolutely everything is totally on them and on nobody else, it's almost like a door was open. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's, that's the thing. I have to take responsibility for everything. And as soon as I do that... Mm then it leaves no excuses. And how you're raised plays a huge, huge mm -hmm. role. Because now you've said that, I, I was in my head, I was thinking about how much I was raised with that, almost accidentally, the fact that when I'd wake up in the morning, my parents weren't there. And when I went to sleep at night, they still were at work. Yeah. Every day for about seven, eight years from the age of 10 to 18. And, and I was explaining on a podcast yesterday that um, made this connection in my mind that if I was going to have anything, it was me that was going to do it, even my packed lunch in the morning. And so I went off into the world with this mindset that because my parents created this massive void, mm. that everything I was going to get was on me. I wasn't going to get Christmas or birthdays. I wasn't going to get two pounds in the morning for, for lunch. It was your responsibility. It was my responsibility to yeah. feed myself. And, and actually, for me, that was really liberating because it made, it made the whole world attainable to me in a weird way. When you believe that you know, Santa Claus is going to show up and, and present things yeah. under the Christmas tree. When did that moment come though? When did you, About when did... 14 years old, I think I really... Okay. I remember I went off to London to do the Junior Apprentice for the BBC and my parents didn't know I'd left the house. And I was there for a day and a half and I was 14. See, they, they this is where you were so different to me though. Because at 14 years of age, I was still watching cartoons that were probably good for eight-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was not a smart, worldly wise kid at 14 who would have taken myself to London to go on the apprentice mm. and try and be on there i i was a really like super late developer but i think what i had similar to you was a, not just a genuine sort of work ethic for my parents but genuine rock solid foundations to start my life from and it's hard to even say exactly what they are but we talk about in my family about giving your kids roots and wings and it's about getting that balance right with giving your kids roots so they know that whenever there is a problem. I mean, I often say to my kids, whatever, and they're only little, they're four and seven, but I'm, one of the phrases I like to sort of instill in them is, listen, I'll always leave a light on. Yeah. In other words, wherever you go, whatever life does for you, however far away you are from home, there's a light on here and you, you'll get back here if you just look for that and you, and you come and find it. And I had that from my parents at a, a really young age, that feeling that... I've got my roots here. Mm -hmm. And I think once you've got that, 
then then it's possible to extend your wings and to go right i i reckon i'm brave enough because it's quite tentative little steps when you're in your teens right i'm yeah, brave yeah. enough to go to london and do an apprentice audition because i can go, go home. i know i can <laughs> yeah. come home i know i've got my yeah. roots there i know there's a light on for me sure and that's i think that's absolutely vital do you feel successful no not really um, I don't feel successful. And this is something that I try and explain to a lot of people. You know when you say, what do people think of you? And I say, oh, I think they probably think I'm smug or whatever. I think that people assume that if you've done the things that I've done or the things that mm. you've done, that it feels different, right? I feel like the same kid that grew up in Stoke Holy Cross, a little village on the outskirts of Norwich. I feel no different. I, I haven't had a buzz as exciting as when in 19, 2001... I bought an MGF sports car. Mm. I paid £9,750 for it and I bought it from an old man in, uh, in Colchester. And I remember him still to this day turning on the light switch in his garage and the light going bzz, 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 flicking on. And there's this green MG car. I was on Children's BBC at the time and it was the first thing I'd ever really bought for myself. Despite everything that's happened since, I've never had that feeling of, wow, that is a real sense of achievement. And it's almost like the longer it goes on, it almost goes the other way. Have you have you ever seen Hamilton in the West End? Uh, three times. I've seen it twice. It's mm-hmm. the greatest musical ever. And you know the song, There's a Million Things I Haven't Done. Yeah. It's almost like the more I do and the more I see, the more I realise what I haven't achieved. So I was watching Miss Americana the other day on Netflix. And I, was, and I think my wife was watching it thinking, oh, this is great. This is nice. And I'm watching it thinking, shit, man. How have I not been as successful as that? I need, how do I get there? What do I do? And that's, I suppose, why I love my job. I love conversations like this because I think that ev- you know everyone can can give you that little bit of information about what they've done in their life, and, and that's why I like sitting with you know high achieving sports people because all I care about is that that high achieving mindset that they've had. Has it ever been somewhat anticlimactic things you've achieved? Because because they didn't, you expected them to feel like euphoria and and like a finish line or a mountain top, but they they didn't quite feel that way. So it felt somewhat anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I th- I, what I would say is I get a real buzz out of doing my job. Like I really love being a TV presenter. I really like the the mental challenge of hearing seven or eight voices in my ear while I'm at a big sports event with 60 or 70,000 people and I'm trying to navigate through and get us out the other side and get the best out of the pundits and come off air to the exact second. I love the challenge of that and I really enjoy the journey. But I don't think that I've ever... I think part of the problem is I don't feel like I've got to where I'm going yet. And And so therefore I've never had that moment of euphoria where I think, Oh my goodness, I've done it. This is amazing. This is me. Doesn't that concern you to some degree? Because you, it sounds like that's a place you will never arrive at. Possibly. But I am still enjoying the journey on the way. I don't feel I've had my moment yet. And I don't feel I've had that moment where I go, yes, that was wonderful. But I absolutely live with the mantra of savour it. Mm. Every single minute of every day, um, I try and make the most of it, you know? If I told you that there was going to come a day in a week where your all your uh, all your ambitions were going to suddenly become accomplished and you were going to you're going to everything you wanted to do was going to be achieved in about mm. a week's time yeah how how does that make you feel a bit a little bit scared <laughs> yeah i think and i suppose immediately my mind goes yeah but i'd get that and then i'll it would be the next thing then yeah and it's almost like a kind of mindset of having having no no barriers or no ceiling really and i think some people look at me as 
the guy who was on the telly with no no knowledge of um, the sort of charitable philanthropic mm-hmm. stuff I like doing or of the production company that I've set up. And those are really important because I think those show that as you get older, like life changes and, and almost without you knowing. Like if we'd have had a conversation 10 years ago um, when I'd just done Formula One for a year and I'd just come off the back of seven or eight years on kids TV and you'd have asked me what really matters to you, I would have said being a TV presenter. Like I was obsessed with being a TV presenter, being a good TV presenter, but mm. still looking at if we were presenting a show together, well, who's talking the most and who gets the first line? Who says hello? Do you say hello every show? Am I saying hello? If you're going to say goodbye, am I going to shout bye-bye at the very end? It was <laughs> it was like that. It was like sure. a battle. It was like a race. It was like, mm. you know, I, I need to show that I'm a TV presenter and I've got to Pretty push. Yourself, I feel like I've now reached a point where I'm really not that bothered about being a TV presenter. I love the job. I'm really proud to do it. But I, I feel like I've, my mind has been open to the fact there's so much more there. I used to think being a TV presenter was the number one job in TV. And that was the main one. And that was like you were the top of the pyramid. And in some ways you are. You know, when I go on air for a game on BT Sport, there's two or three hundred people working there. BT have paid 11 million quid for the privilege of that one game. Mm. And you're the person that goes, hi, welcome. Mm. You don't really want to mess your words up at that point because it's a bit embarrassing. But as I've gone through, I've realised that actually you're just one of the cogs in a really big wheel. Mm. And what I love about having set up the production company that I have is that being on like a board of directors is so exciting because you see this great overview of a business and you get a, and you'll feel this as well with social chain and all the other things you're doing. You get this sense of the, you're not just dealing with your little part of your job. You're driving on a whole business, a whole group of people. And when I first started in telly, people used to help me out and do things for me, like, you know, they'd give me a presenting job and they would be really buzzing for me. And I'd look at them thinking, why are you, why are you excited? Because you've given me a great opportunity. I don't, I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. Now I get, you know, you talk about, have I had that moment of, whoa, I've done it. I get a million times more of a buzz from watching other people do well and standing back Mm. like a sort of proud dad than I do my own stuff. You know, my ambition has kind of become lifting everybody up and trying to make the whole, not the whole world because I can't control that, but my own little space in this world as good as it can be for every single person in it. It's really weird. Um, really weird phenomenon that seems to take place in successful people's lives where the first portion of their life, they're focused on being selfish. Yeah. Because totally. selfishness seems to do something for them. And then yeah. it seems that they undergo some kind of transition where they realise that being selfless is is actually the most selfish thing that they can do. So it's you being selfless that's actually doing the most for you. And it's still you being selfish, mm. but it's for... Yeah, it's just a really a good way of looking at it. A different way. I don't know when the change happened, though. I don't know when that moment came where I didn't really care about my own personal achievement and it became about the bigger... Is it not when you you ticked the box for yourself and something? The validation that you were seeking or the the goals that... It could be the financial freedom that you were seeking. And you thought, you know, I can get nothing more out of me taking another step forward. If Mm. I I get another job, it's really not going to move me in any way. If I get another thousand pounds, whatever, it's not going to move me in any way. And then that becomes almost like a full box. It's like... And this is what you see with these billionaires. You know, they start giving ten billion to the environment, like Be- Bezos did this week, and going to the moon. And it's yeah. like, 
Why is that? Is that because they're searching for the next thing? Are they looking for a big buzz, or is it because yeah. the world has be- the yeah. world's become more than about them? It's it's it's. I think they filled like another Lamborghini is not going to move them in any way, in any way. But they need to be moved mm. in some way, and so you go in search of what can give you that. And it's a. I completely resonate with the feeling that, in fact, the most enjoyable thing for me, I said on my podcast, I think last week or the week before, was buying my mum new teeth was because so she could smile was like i was really buzzing and then giving people jobs at social chain and and watching them develop is like seems like you know that that's much more than buying another louis vuitton bag for me yeah on screen you have to be a certain way Mm. right you have to adopt i'm presuming a certain personality to some degree you're quite lucky actually because you can be yourself you need to yeah i'm a firm believer that to be a good in fact anything you do Mm. if you're playing a role it is not going to last, man. Authenticity is the most important thing. And it doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of Social Chain or mm-hmm. you're standing hosting a game of football. If you're trying to be a CEO, mm-hmm. it is going to fall apart. If you're trying to be what you think a TV presenter should be, mm-hmm. again, it's going to fall apart. Authenticity is absolutely the right thing. And I suppose all I would say is when you're a TV presenter, you are you just 20% more. Mm-hmm. So if I'm on the telly now, and I'm asking you a question, I probably wouldn't talk like this. I'd be like, right, Stephen, let's talk about, you know, your business and how it's, you know, sure. it's, it's still me and it's still what I'm thinking, but it just, you just lift it a little, sure. you know? Sure, for delivery and you for think so. Yeah, just to, you've got to engage people. People still look at people on TV, though, in many respects, as they did with Caroline Flack. Mm. And they, they assume, because of your success and because of your, you know, you've got money, you've got your own business, now you've got your own production company, um, you must be completely happy you must be yeah and but, i'm sure that but i think it's like every other walk of life there are people who are completely happy where they are and there will be people who are not tv presenters who are completely happy and there were people who are tv presenters who are completely happy but i also think there is another type of person where almost the more you get the more difficult it can become um you, and that's such a sad sad story the whole caroline flack situation uh, you know my experience is obviously completely different to hers, but I would certainly say that the single biggest source of stress in my entire life is social media. I find it a really, really stressful experience the whole time. And I'm kind of jealous of you because I look at you and I think you have such a great relationship with it. You, From the outside, it looks to me like you totally understand it. You can navigate your way through. You know the right thing to say and when and the right thing to post and when and... I feel like every time I go on there, I'm probably going to fuck it up a bit and maybe get a bit of criticism and kind of hope for the best. I just feel like I don't really understand it, you know? Mm. And and I think, the, you know, the Caroline Flack story is, is a really, really stark ex- example of how I think all of us have got a real... It comes back to the same bloody thing of responsibility because there are people who are putting stuff out there on social media about Caroline um, and not really about her, about the world we live in, saying you've got to be nicer, you've got to be better, you've got to be kind to people. And then at the same time, they're diving in and attacking someone else who they don't think is being kind. And I know that they think they're helping, but they're adding to the bile and they're adding to the vitriol. And, you know, people have to look at their own actions, right? Have you gone onto social media in the last couple of weeks, criticised the press and social media users and the world that we live in for being unkind and cruel. And then two minutes later, you've gone onto a website 
um, that peddles news about celebrities and gossip? Or have you gone and bought a gossip magazine? Have you basically fed the monster, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of this stuff is supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And if we stop demanding that we want to know everything about celebrities, lifestyles and what goes on, then the then I guess the supply will eventually end as well. So don't look at the media and blame the media. In this particular case, don't look at the CPS and blame them. Don't look at people who are on social media and blame them. We all have a responsibility to alter the way this goes. And the only thing that you can really control, instead of going onto social media and yelling at everyone else to be better, the only thing we can really all control is the way that we use the world and the way that we talk. And if you just go on social media and be positive, if you just read articles or absorb media that is moving the world forwards in a positive way, not a negative way, then I think you're doing your bit, you know? You talked a lot about your own struggles. You got to a point where you were suicidal in a few years back now. Was the cause of that, in your mind, related to criticism in social media or was it... No. No, it was a pre... This was pre-social media, really. Really? Yeah. And I think this... I think I went through a period that perhaps a lot of young men go through, right? Where things just feel a little bit overwhelming and they're not sure how to deal with it. And, you know, I actually... I never contemplated suicide because my my grandma had committed suicide. So I'd seen the absolute first-hand stark effect of what happens when a member of your family kills themselves and how long it took my dad, who's her son, to recover from that. And there was no way that, that I was ever going to do that because it just wasn't an option for me, having seen what I'd seen. So the only option for me was to do what I've always done in my life and just talk. And I'm really glad I did. And I think that... That's what made the big difference for me. But what what this was, and I remember, I can almost remember the day, like I moved into a flat in East London, just got a job on Children's BBC. And you would think again, oh, perfect, man. You're 22, 23, you're on kids TV. You're for the first time in your life, you're earning money. You've just got a flat, you're moved into London. But I remember my parents driving off down the road, watching them go. And this sort of like sinking feeling, it was like a sort of a volcano erupting or something like that. And I thought... I can't deal with this. And I remember wanting to ring them and cry on the phone and say, can you come back and get me and take me back to Norwich, please? And I think that that just created a sort of an imbalance, really, in my brain for a period of time. And I was really lucky that I had them there and I spoke to them and I, I mean, I went to the GP who said, well, maybe you're in the wrong job, maybe you can't deal with the pressure. And I remember just thinking, that's totally not what this is about. You know, I'm just going through a, a period of sort of, I don't know whether it was introspection or just my brain maturing or or do, it was just going through a sort of strange episode, basically. Mm-hmm. And by talking and sharing with people, and I told my wa- uh, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, exactly what I was feeling and when, which was like quite scary to yeah, do. Yeah, especially then. I mean, especially then, yeah. It's and different. That, yeah, different yeah. Now, I do, but... didn't speak to people at work. I, I didn't do that. I didn't go into work and talk to people about it there. Um, but I certainly, my my family and my wife absolutely were well aware of it, yeah. Um, and in a strange way, I now, I now I'm kind of glad I went through that period. And my message to anyone who's in a, in a similar place is not only is talking absolutely the answer, and I'm not the person to cure them, but I can tell you what made the change for me. And it was the day that I accepted I might have these feelings. And they might come and go my whole life. And if they come, 
it's a trick. It's just my brain playing a trick, making me feel something that isn't real. And I need to stop believing something that is not there, that's in my head and use the evidence in front of my own eyes. And that is such a difficult thing to do. But as soon as I accepted it was a trick and it was a, like my brain trying to con me, and your brain is a very powerful tool, it's, it kind of melted away. It was the acceptance that made it go, strangely. The next point in my diary this week is about the podcast sponsor, which is Boost by Facebook. They are a dedicated one-stop shop for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, for small businesses, job seekers, and anybody with ambition that's looking to thrive in this digital economy. They launched with the aim of creating a place where all of us can understand this new world of digital and social. It can be incredibly intimidating. My mum, I was talking to her about Boost with Facebook the other day. She doesn't know how to use a phone. She doesn't know how to type and she's trying to to run a business in 2020 and compete against people that do. Boost is a place for people like her where she can learn more about the digital economy, about features and skills and training and all of the things that matter, the things that might level the playing field for her as someone that doesn't know about this new world that we live in. You can learn more about this at facebook.com slash boost with Facebook UK. Um, and if you do check it out, drop me a message and let me know how you find it. I always pop on there every now and then to, to, to try and make sure I'm staying ahead of the curve. But yeah, do let me know how you find it. And with the with the pressure of TV, I mean, like it's something that I can't quite imagine. Um, you say that I've got this like personal way with social media. Yeah. I understand how the thing works. Yeah, yeah. But even me, even with all the books I've read and everything I've studied, and you know, all the advice I've given, reading something on social media which is particularly personal or particularly untrue and personal. Yeah. Especially if you read something that's particularly untrue and personal, and that's going viral <laughs> about you. It's it's. I still haven't figured out how to deal with that perfectly with emotionally. Yeah, me too. Yeah, 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 me too. You know? Because it will still be on my mind for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You know, and it will will affect, you can feel it's hard to sleep sometimes, whatever. Um, But you you very much live in that world by putting yourself out in the public eye. So those feelings that you felt when you were 20-something must have been exacerbated. The, the big, the, I'm guessing, this is me being naive, but have those been exacerbated since because of because of your rise in success and public profile and I think that I think that in terms of being on the telly I feel totally at ease with that now mm-hmm. like I don't even get nervous now mm-hmm. no matter what the show is no matter what the gig is mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm totally at home in front of a television screen um, I'm glad that I didn't land a job on Formula One until 2009 when I was almost 30 and that I didn't end up getting a Twitter account or an Instagram account until what year was Instagram? What year did it start? Instagram? About 10 years ago now. Yeah. So I think I started F1 in 09. I think in about 2010, I might've got Twitter. Sure. And it was a jumble. It was like then really nice. Yeah. Everyone was yeah. like, Woo, you're yeah. on Twitter. This is amazing. <laughs> Thanks for sending me a message. I think you're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and I suppose the, the, the big fundamental change in my head, right. Is that I felt when social media first started and Twitter first started, it made me feel like I was a genius, right? <laughs> because I was doing F1 at the time and it was on BBC One and we had, you know, six, seven, eight million people watching it. So people would tweet about it a lot. And suddenly, mm. if we were doing a, um, a race and we were on, on air, then the sort of top 10 trending topics were all Formula One related or BBC Formula One related. So Jake Comfrey, Eddie Jordan, David Coulthard. BBC F1. Sure. I was the first person on telly to use an iPad rather than a clipboard. So iPad would trend every week. And if I was wearing like a 
and a shirt, you know, Jake's shirt would be like a fourth trending topic. And I was thinking, wow, everything I do like turns <laughs> to gold. This is amazing. But it was this, this kind of a heady mix of being on the biggest channel in the UK and social media having just begun and mm. people at that time being quite, having a very different relationship with it and being really positive with it. Mm-hmm. And then all, fast forward a few years and the only thing that I see really about myself on social media is is negative. Like, oh, here's Jake Humphrey ruining another football match. Oh, you know, these are just ones that I remember from the last week. Oh, two minutes into the game um, and I'm already pissed off with Jake Humphrey. Uh, Jake Humphrey is such a smug C word. How does that make you feel, honestly? Um... Do you know what? It really did bother me at the beginning. I couldn't work out why I was suddenly getting everything wrong. I was like, oh my goodness, why have I suddenly become the person that nobody wants to watch? Why am I suddenly the person that nobody likes? And I, and you can you can imagine if you're really young. I'm so glad I didn't get this experience until the last six or seven years. Imagine if you're 13 or 14 and you see two or three comments from school friends and you think, oh, why am I the one kid nobody likes? What? Yeah. That is so, so difficult to deal with. And I'm so scared of my kids seeing that and being in that world. And even at the age I was at, at the time it would have been in my early 30s, even I was like, wow, why have I suddenly become unpopular? And I suppose it took me quite a long time to realise, and I was really bothered about it then, I hated it, and it, and it would play on my mind, and, and it would ruin entire weekends because I'd read a comment. But then I kind of realised that, this is going everyone's way. Nobody is immune to this. And it's not about me. It's about, for some reason, this innate sort of anger that we seem to have, we seem to live with now on social media that people can't, people are constantly waiting, looking for a really random reason to bite back at someone. And I don't know whether it's to make themselves feel better or because, I don't know, Stephen, I don't know why it is, but it almost feels like everyone's just waiting for an attack. And that's why the conversations that have been had in the kind of subsequent days after the death of you know caroline is is a really healthy conversation to have but it's it's totally pointless unless people actually change the way they they wire their brains when using social media and mm. i will admit to being similar someone will put something up and i'll be like oh i can't be right oh what should i go? and i'm thinking hold on a minute i would <laughs> never say that to that person yeah i would never have that conversation in a room why am i why am i putting it on here I think much of the answer is what we're incentivized to do, we do more of. And if you think about the gearing of algorithms, they incentivize you to be provocative and inflammatory because yeah. you get likes, followers and retweets. And that's the that's the currency and the reinforcement of social media. The other thing is there's a real psychological incentive to tearing someone else down because it makes or at least discrediting them in some way, because then the the kind of mirror shining back on you says oh, that man. you are knocking people down to make yourself feel big makes yeah. you feel sick. There's a there's a quote is one of my favorite quotes when I think about social media, which is misery loves company. Yeah, yeah. And it's like if I'm miserable, I want everyone else to be miserable because then that'll make me feel somewhat validated in my misery mm. or my lack of success or my whatever. So, you know, what I think it's sad though. Yeah, when you talk about people doing things for for likes right and yeah. we've all fallen in that trap 100%. i will readily admit yes. over the years i've fallen in that trap at times it kills creativity though doesn't it yes it does because you start because i could do something that i'm really proud of that i think yeah. is fantastic right yeah and i put it up on my instagram or whatever and it will get 45 likes and two comments and i'll be like oh that must we'll do been, that again that must have been <laughs> crap whereas i can put something else up which is maybe inflammatory or it maybe cliche. is a cliche or maybe it's just 
stealing a quote from you know someone from 200 years ago and putting it on my Instagram and saying hey guys look at this amazing quote and it gets 600 likes or whatever which would be a good number well what's the what's the more creative thing to do to just Mm. be you or to or to do stuff solely because you know it has an impact and I was talking to you before we started recording about Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, and you need to read the book, right? Mm. But in the book, he talks about the fact that one of his kind of um, golden rules to being a successful CEO is to have absolute rock-solid belief and to to totally trust your instincts and to go with it. Mm. Not to try and give an answer that you think people want to hear Mm. or try and do something that you think will be well-received. Just be you, and it's all he describes it. I think he describes it almost as like a secret superpower, and I really love that. And that is one of the things I want to live by because if I can, mm. if I can just be totally honest and be totally me and never do something because actually, when I've got myself in a muddle, it's because I've done something for an ulter- ulterior reason rather than just going, No, this is what I think, and I really believe in what, I, in what I'm saying here. So you can either like it or not, but I believe it. If you can yeah. do that, it's a really healthy place to get to. I completely agree. I, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, the one thing that nearly cost me my career in the last five years was this a couple of a couple of months where I, for whatever reason, which I won't go into, I stopped listening to what I thought was true, my conviction, yeah. and I put the certain very important decisions in the hands of other people. And it took me about three months to realise that I nearly ruined everything I've spent the last five, six years working for because I knew the answer, but I didn't speak up because of a bunch of factors. And it wasn't until I spoke up and said, everything we've done in this period is incorrect and let's go my way, that everything went perfectly. Wow, and it's and it's exactly it's what you described. Listen. It was yeah. the one time in the last five years for, for just a short period that I let go of my conviction. You mentioned Harriet, mm. your wife, my wife. Yeah, what's it like working with? Because she works at Whisper Group, right? Your production company. Yeah, what's it like working with your wife? It's um, <laughs> is she here? <laughs> no, no, she's not. It's incredible. I mean, she, you know, to, to be honest, in recent times she's taken much more of a backward step because we've got two little kids mm-hmm. it almost it, it was kind of more of a thrill right because when when whisper first started and we you know, we now have about 80 or 90 staff we've just announced recently wow. that sony have just purchased 25 percent of the business so that's the aim is to work with them to try and take the business global um when we first started it was my wife and our current ceo sunil patel working together in the back bedroom of our house um and it, it worked well actually we got on really well and it, it it went it went okay i know it doesn't always happen for some people but the best thing was that we all and you might have felt like this when you started social chain we felt like we were just like kids like having a go and seeing where it went to and i love the fact that we went on that journey together and she was part of it right from day one and and this was something that, that we built together. That's really important to me. And you, people don't typically think of you as a, an entrepreneur. Right? That's they right. They think yeah. of you as a, a TV personality, a TV presenter, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So tell me what it's been like being an entrepreneur. It's <laughs> been the most rewarding feeling in the world. Mm. And I spoke about this on my Instagram a little while ago. It's all come about, right? Because before I started working in Formula One, I thought that there was a secret that you that you or I didn't know, but the billionaires and the millionaires and the entrepreneurs and the CEOs and the successful people all knew this secret, right? And then I got into Formula One 
And it was the first time I'd been around really high achieving people. And I was really, really keen. And I said this to you before, my, why I love doing my job in sports broadcasting is about being with high achieving individuals. I'm not really at all bothered who wins or loses a race or a game of football. I don't care. I love people pushing themselves to the limit to be successful, right? Mm -hmm. So I got into Formula One and I started saying to Eddie Jordan, who set up the Jordan Formula One team and, you know, whose wife packed vegetables to earn the extra money to keep the race team alive until they were successful. I said, what was the secret? And then I spoke with Ron Dennis, who set up the McLaren Formula One team, one of the most famous teams to ever race in Formula One. I said, what was the secret? And I remember talking to Lewis Hamilton and saying to him, you know, you've ended up as one of the greatest Formula One drivers the world's ever seen. What was your secret? Tell me, Jake, what's the secret? <laughs> mm, I just kind of did it. And I was like, what? That is massively disappointing. Because I was expecting this great revelation. And I was really like, oh, is that it? And then I thought on that for a bit and I thought, hold on a minute. Surely that's the best answer I could have ever wanted because it means it's open to me. So I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go for this. So I spoke with Sunil and I said, look, why don't we just do our own thing? You're a great producer. We'll go and do this together. I, you know, all the Formula One teams and sponsors know me from being a presenter. Let's go and meet them all and try and build a business producing content for Formula One teams, not knowing it would ever grow to the size that it does. You know, we now produce more highlights for terrestrial broadcasters in the UK of sports content than anybody else. You know, the mm. business is, we're probably the third biggest sports production company in the country now. Wow. And it just started out with the two of us going and having a couple of meetings. But it was just because we did it. And I suppose the one thing I would love people to take away from listening to this today is it does not matter what it is, whether it is setting up social chain, setting up the whisper group, setting up a company that makes lovely gourmet sweets like the conversation mm. you had recently. Go and do it. Just go and do it because the mo don't wait for the motivation to come. Do the action, and that's where the motivation comes from. And then you're on this roller coaster, and my God, it's an exciting ride. I can hear people listening to this, Jake, and they're saying, "But you know, I just need to make the the perfect plan, and I've been, you know, I'm just need to, I need, I need to find the, the the right business. I need to make this needs to be perfect. The, the timing. I'm very busy at work. I'm I've just done this. I I need to I need to be financially. I don't have any yeah. money, Jake. Yeah. You know. I know all of those, and I get a lot of that back to me on social media when I put this stuff out there. There is never a right time to do it. But ab the, the biggest mistake you can make in life is not doing it at all. I'm not saying it's going to be a success. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's guaranteed. But I am saying the biggest regret you have is if you, if in 30 years time you think, oh, I wish I'd done that. And the world is full of people who say, I wish I'd done that. Oh, I had that idea, but I didn't do it. I could have been a millionaire, but I didn't. Do Just give it a go. You, you, the only way you will know is by giving it a go. And if you do, if you really believe in what you're thinking, if you've got loads of passion, if you've got... If you get a few lucky breaks along the way, then it absolutely, it absolutely will work for you. But, you know, take the responsibility. It comes back to that same point I made at the beginning of this conversation. Take the responsibility. Give it a go. If you have to work double, just do it. Be responsible. Try it. You were involved in a break. Yeah. The charity for you. Yeah. You're a patron. Yeah. What's, what, what work are you doing there? And tell me a little bit about your more philanthropic endeavours. So it's already sort of <clears throat> important thing for me um doing various charity initiatives and trying to trying to make a difference where i can so i'm on the board of trustees for the community sport foundation which is a charity in norwich that uses sport to change people's lives because through the work that i've done as a sports presenter i really believe you can improve people's lives through sport i've been a patron for break for a decade which is again a children's charity that provides services to young people that is 
they're just not being provided elsewhere. There isn't the money to do what Break does, which is provide respite care, take families on holiday. Um, they run children's centres and children's homes. Sometimes they have something called family's house, and sometimes the only safe place for a young person to be with their mum and dad is at Break's family's house, which is incredibly sad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also a vice president of Click Sergeant, which is um, the children's leukemia and cancer charity, and my wife and I put on it a yearly event, and we've... We've raised a million pounds for them wow. in the last four years at, wow. at a, a yearly event that we do. That is that is probably what I'm more proud of than anything else that I've done actually over the years. And I think it comes from my dad. He was a charity worker. When we were growing up, we lived in an old people's home because we couldn't find a house. And just to see my dad at work looking after those people, we, we couldn't walk down the road without my dad stopping and talking to someone who's homeless, giving them his card, giving them some advice, telling them where they can go. And that having kindness above everything else absolutely came from my dad and I suppose you know I don't do it because I want people to go oh he's so great he does loads for charity he's such a nice bloke but that is probably an area where I do get frustrated with the whole social media thing where people go oh he's just a guy on the telly making as much money as he can and whatever that's really not me you know I feel really really lucky that I found a job that I love being a tv presenter I feel really lucky that I actually find it easy but the best thing it's done for me is it's it's given me opportunities to do all of this charity work and to use my profile and to use my contacts to, to try and improve the lives of other people. That is absolutely more important to me than anything else. I, I do you know I completely believe you. <laughs> well, and I think do you know what, as I was saying, you know, <laughs> I was thinking, God, I'm sure he's heard this loads of times because no, it does sound like bullshit. You. No, you, do you know what I mean? It no, does sound yeah, yeah. like oh, here he is trotting out the same old. Well, the most important thing for no, me is to help other people. But that in my mind, it's funny because mm. when you meet when you meet someone, you can it's you know it doesn't take you long, especially when we have conversations like this to really know yeah. who the person is yeah, yeah, yeah. and to know how much <clears> of it is an act. You can even tell by someone's body language how much they are per se trying. To, really? to, to, of course because you're sat like this you're super relaxed and you're talking without thinking right and yeah. that's how I know what you're saying is so utterly authentic but even off camera you've been so utterly authentic and I and I think um, you know if people people have any question of your character then they um, then they are quite simply quite wrong Thanks. you know and I've it's only really known you for you. a couple of hours really but um, just to wrap up then yeah. I have a game I play which I'm, you might have heard before which is the old dinner party game which gives me an insight into who your idols are really that's why I asked the question we're at a table six seats I'm in one of them you're in the other um, there's four empty seats dead or alive who am I for? if you've listened to this podcast you should have <laughs> the answer well, everybody takes like 35 minutes to think of no. games Okay, here we go. This is easy for me. This is easy Great. for me. Um, the first would be my grandpa. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, because he died too young for me to really talk to him about the life that he lived. I really wanted to be a policeman when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So I applied to be a special constable while I was working at Rapture TV in Norwich, but I'm colourblind, so I got told no. Oh. In fact, this wouldn't happen now, but when I was six, I had a colourblindness test at primary school and they gave me a piece of paper with a list of jobs I can't do. Oh, police great. officer was on there and I went home crying and it took me weeks to recover from that so my grandpa would absolutely be there um, I've got his war medals at home he was a wow. police officer he was a soldier um, he's an amazing gentle quiet bloke but never spoke of the life that he lived in fact it was only after he died that my mum told me that his, he'd had a first wife who died of cancer and he'd remarried my granny and then had my mum and it, I think man wow. I never even had that that conversation with my with my own grandpa so he would absolutely be on that list um the second one would be jeremy goss (laughs) who scored the most famous goal in the history of norwich city 
Uh, it was against Bayern Munich. Um, it was in the UEFA Cup in 1993. Wow. And basically Norwich were this little minnow team that were never going to do anything special against Bayern Munich. And he managed to put the ball in the back of the net. So that's my second one. My third one, um, and I feel like a slight fraud for doing this, because if you'd have asked me this exact conversation a month ago, I would not have said this guy. But I absolutely would have Bob Iger on that list. <laughs> because the book that he's just written called Ride of a Lifetime about... And what I love about it is that he talks about working right at the bottom of a business and learning about people along the way. He talks about the fact that you can be a really good person and be really successful. And the fact, and what he's noticed over the years is people think they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. You can either be successful or good. Mm -hmm. You actually can be good and successful, which I think wow. is such a strong message to pass on to people. Um, and the book is just amazing. And it's an incredible story. And this is a guy who sat down with George Lucas and purchased Lucasfilm. This is a guy who sat down with Steve Jobs and bought Pixar from Crazy. Apple. Like the conversations he's had are unbelievable. Um, and then the final one uh, will be someone else who's sadly not with us, which will be Freddie Mercury, because Queen is my most favourite band of all time. <laughs> he was the most incredible entertainer, remarkable life, remarkable story, and he would sing to us at the end of dinner. What would we eat? We would... What would we, uh, we eat my mum's cooking because it is absolutely exceptional. <laughs> we'll pull up a, a seventh chair for that. She yeah. can join. All right, then we'll let her join in. She can hang out with her dad again. Oh, amazing. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Jake, for your time today. Thanks, You're mate. an incredible character, an incredible, Thanks. incredible character. And I hope one day that I can, um, I can read your book your, uh, as it relates Let's to performance see, yeah. and, and all these Let's things. See. And your podcast is coming out very shortly. Yeah, I'm creating a podcast called High Performance with um, a man called Damon Hughes, who is an author and he's a professor. He specialises in high-performance cultures in sports teams. Mm. So we're not just talking to sports people, we'll be talking to you on oh, wow. High Performance about, about high performance and how you live a high-performance lifestyle. I can't wait. I'm really, really excited for that. And um, I wanted to thank you very, really, really sincerely for, for, for coming and doing this today because I know how busy you are. Yeah, and um, you're someone that you know, has brought me a ton of joy in my life watching TV shows and bringing context to the sports that I'm watching. So it, it feels like a little bit of a fanboy moment for me, for sure. And you're an incredible guy in, a, in person, just as you are on TV. So thank you so much. And I'll throw the love straight back at you. Thank you, you know that you host my favourite podcast. And I think <laughs> the messages that you put out there um, with how busy you are to keep mm. on doing it. And I know why you do it. You do it because you, you, you want to connect with people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I know that most people in your position move away from connecting with people because they're too busy and everything becomes about them and it becomes selfish again. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that you've been successful and you've kept hold of the selfless side. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, mate. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD.